Please be seated. I invite you to open up your bulletin, take the notes out this morning. Um, We have a lot of text to look at and not much time to do it in. We continue our fourth week in our series on race or justice, race in the Bible. And I'll remind you where we've come and we have one week remaining. Um, We're trying to address issues um, being brought up moral claims being brought up, and to think through them biblically. There's two dangers. One is to ignore such things. We should not do that. When our brothers and sisters, when our neighbors and countrymen cry out against evil, when they renounce evil, when they cry out for help, we need to listen, we need to think through those things. But we need to think biblically, defining categories biblically. So in our first message, we talked about judging with just or right judgments, Um, how to approach making ethical judgments. What type of evidence or weight is required to bring a condemnation? The second week we considered with Pastor Daniel the distinction between inequality and injustice, um, that they are not the same thing. Last week we considered the, the terrible sin of racism and its roots and its causes in our hearts. This week we're going to look at confronting the evil of injustice and oppression. And then next week, we'll end in a glorious note of God's multiracial, multi-ethnic purpose to create for himself a people from every tribe, people, and tongue. God's purpose in the gospel going out to all peoples. And how as his redeemed people, that ought to bring us joy. Every time the gospel passes boundaries made by man, we should rejoice. So this morning, we're going to look at confronting the evil of injustice and oppression. And there's, there's three points. I'll give you the three main blanks right now. I have three goals this morning. One is to notice injustice and oppression condemned. This is no small theme in the Bible. God hates injustice. He is furious at it. And we will see some of his strong denunciations. And as his people, if we're to think his thoughts after him, if our hearts reflect his thoughts, we too need to be provoked by it. We can't afford to be callous to it, indifferent to it. Second, we're going to look at the just response to the poor and needy. Justice to the poor and needy commanded. What is our, our cultures, what is justice due to the poor and the needy? And then finally, grace and mercy commended. Grace and mercy commended. One of the reasons why this series has gone in this order is the distinction between justice and grace and mercy, I think, is critical. And so there's what does justice do to the poor and the needy, and then what does grace commend to us? That's where we're going to move. And if you'd open up to the book of Deuteronomy, there are a lot of passages, but I only intend to ask you to turn to two with me. We'll look at a number of passages in Deuteronomy, and we'll look somewhat extensively towards the end at 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. So Deuteronomy... Um, you can turn it, if you want to get ready, to chapter 10. So injustice and oppression condemned. Um, it is right to hate this. It is right to cry out against injustice. It is right to be broken, to lament, to rip one's clothing in the face of injustice. This is the heart of our God. So I want you to see that God is passionately concerned about justice in human society. He's, he's passionately concerned about justice in regards to him, true and right worship, 
But there's a secondary theme that's equally huge in Scripture, and that's God's passion that justice be done horizontally, man to man. Now, the reason why he is concerned about this is because he himself is entirely just. God himself is entirely just. He tells Moses this on the mountain, Exodus 34. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. There's sort of the gospel side, grace, mercy, but also who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children, to the third and fourth generation. Part of God's glory is he's a savior, he's a redeemer, he's merciful, and he is absolutely just. Absolutely just. Listen to some of these striking statements from the Psalms. Psalm 89, verse 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Psalm 97, 1 to 3. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let all the coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. There's two psalms in a row testifying to the reality that God's throne, his rule, his kingship sits upon his righteousness. It is a righteous throne. The judgments that come from his throne are righteous, good, just. And then because that is his nature, he requires of his people similar responses. He demands justice of his people. He demands justice of his people. So turn to Deuteronomy 16. We saw this three weeks ago, I believe. Should not be surprised that the God we worship, whose throne is righteous, then says in Deuteronomy 16, 18, his people need to follow suit. You shall appoint judges, Deuteronomy 16, verse 18, and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. You shall accept not a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow. You may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving to you. God is passionately concerned about justice, and he demands it of his people. Listen to this statement in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 21. God's lament over the state of his people. One of the primary reasons cited for the Babylonian captivity. There's two primary ones, and they, they link together. Israel has not been faithful to worship God, and the fruit of that faithlessness has been injustice and oppression among the peoples. And again and again and again, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, God makes it clear. You have abandoned faithfulness to me, and the evidence of that is seen in the oppression in your cities. So Isaiah 1, how the faithless city has become a whore. She who is made full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. 
So God requires it of his people, and he is provoked when his people do injustice. Further than that, even, God makes it clear that injustice in his people negates the value of any attempts they may have to to feign worship of him. Injustice on his people's parts, if his people are engaged in injustice, our worship is in vain. Earlier in Isaiah, I'll read to you what comes right before that. Verses 1 through 11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling in my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure the iniquity and solemn assembly. Your noons and appointed feasts my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I am weary of them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Now why? Why would God make such strong statements against the worship of Israel? Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes and cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Israel was engaged in systemic injustice, oppression. Here the the widow, the fatherless are named, and God will have nothing to do with their worship. He has no interest in it. Likewise, if you and I are, are doing injustice to our fellow man, I think it would be fair to say God is not at all interested in what we have to say or do when we gather here. Does not James tell us true and undefiled religion is what? To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So God hates injustice. He's grieved by injustice. He demands justice of his people in society. He tells them that their worship is in vain. Listen to this famous passage from Amos. Again, a call to justice. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness, not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear went to meet him, went to the house and leaned his hand against a wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness, not light, gloom with no brightness in it? I hate I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. The peace offerings of your fattened animals I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness of the house of Israel? That's an oft-quoted passage. God telling his people, stop trying to worship me in vain. Do justly. Do justly. So God, God is passionate about this. And as God is passionate about justice, it becomes clear in Scripture that he has a, a focus on the justice, on justice. 
He's, he's concerned with justice at every level of society, but, but a triumvirate of three people keeps showing up again and again. I had about eight pages of references. I was spending most of my time this morning cutting references out. But God is particularly concerned with justice towards the weak and the powerless. God is particularly concerned. And, and I think the reason's obvious. People with wealth and power, when injustice have done, have louder voices to cry out. They have more influence in the courts. They can get the attention of officials. But the weak and the powerless, they have no such recourse. And so God makes it clear. He has his eye on them. He cares for them. So I'm going to show you, and here are your three blanks. Repeated care. Here's the triumvirate that keeps showing up. The sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. The foreigner dwelling in our land. The fatherless and the widow. Now, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 10, I'll try to show you some of these passages. Just again and again and again, they show up. So Deuteronomy 10. Look at verse 17, 18, and 19. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great the mighty and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Then notice those people are called to respond. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. See how God singles out those three? Let's turn to chapter 24. I had to cut passages out. There are just dozens of passages highlighting God's concern for the, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. Exodus 24, I mean De- Deuteronomy 24, I'm sorry. Verse 17 and 18. You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or the fatherless, or take a widow's garment and pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. You see his attention. And what he's saying is justice at every level, and the best place to examine justice is justice where it would be easiest to twist justice. The people who'd most likely be able to get away with it because they're powerless, because they're weak, because they have little recourse. And so God says, that's, that's where I have my eye. My eye is on the weak and the powerless, the fatherless, the widow, the sojourner, and I'm looking at how you treat them. I care for them. And this is, again, good news for us. This is the heart of our God. He cares for the weak, and he cares for the powerless, which is why he cares for people like you and me. He cares for them. Turn to chapter 27, Deuteronomy. There's a list of curses here. He's reminding the people of the covenant. And they're to repeat afterwards these curses to remind them. And and notice the covenant curse of verse 19. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner and the fatherless and the widow. And all the people shall say, Amen. God is greatly concerned with justice for this group. I'll read to you a little more um, from, from the psalm. Keep saying Deuteronomy. We'll be back here. 
Psalm 94. Pastor Daniel read Psalm 94 at the beginning of his message two weeks ago. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words. All the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. Or Psalm 68, verse 5. The fatherless, the, God is, describes himself, the father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. Or Jeremiah 7, 5 through 7. Again, the repeated charge against Israel. As Israel's going off into captivity. What have we done, they say to the Lord. You've been faithless to me, and you've done injustice to the weak and the powerless. Jeremiah 7, 5 through 7. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds... If you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place. So what would it take for Israel to stay in the land? Be faithful to me, God says, and do justice with the weak and the powerless. Or... Ezekiel 22, verses 6 and 7. This condemnation on Israel. Behold, the princes in Israel and you, every one according to his power, have been bent on shedding blood. Father and mother are treated with contempt in you. The sojourner suffers extortion in your midst. The fatherless and the widow are wronged in you. Or verse 29 of Ezekiel 22. The people of the land have practiced extortion and committed robbery. They've oppressed the poor and the needy. They've extorted from the sojourner without justice. I hope you get this from stacking these passages, just how provoked God is when his people who bear his name treat with injustice those who are weak and powerless. He's furious. This is why Israel is being deported from the land. I could give you more passages, but hopefully at this point it becomes clear as anger. Now, I want to make a qualification here. I want to make a qualification And the qualification is this. He rebukes injustice, not inequality. In every instance that I've found, real crimes are named. Real wrongs are done. It is not simply that some of you are very, very rich and some of you are poor. And I want to make that distinction because today that distinction is not always clear. Real crimes are being committed. Real wrongs are being done. But he is not simply rebuking the rich for the sake of being the rich. And he's simply not raising up the poor as virtuous for the sake of being poor. Wages are being withheld. People's court cases are not being heard. Justice is being perverted. People are receiving bribes. Real wrongs are being done. That's critical to get. Because we're warned against the danger of simply stacking the the scales in favor of the weak and the poor. That that can be the temptation for us. Because we know that the rich have access, if they want, corruptly, because of their power, because of their wealth. They have access to bribes and influence the courts. We can be tempted sometimes to sort of put our fingers on the scale in favor of the poor, to give them a little counterbalance. But listen to Leviticus 19. You shall do no injustice in the court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. You don't respond to injustice with injustice. You don't, two injustices don't make a right. Fair enough? We, we don't respond to injustice with injustice. We don't respond to hate with hate. We don't respond to racism with racism. We respond with righteousness and with justice. So real crimes are committed. Let me, let me give you another example. 
Um, in James chapter 5, the, the rich are denounced with a blistering attack from James. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Why, what have they done? You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborer who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. See, it's not simply, you rich fat cats, how dare you? They're actually doing injustice. And so we should, if we're going to have God's heart, we should hate injustice. We should be aware of how easy it is to do injustice to the poor, the powerless, the weak, the orphan, the widow, the sojourner. We should not be surprised when, when it is done. We should diligently inquire. But until we actually find evidence of injustice, we do not condemn. This is the, the movement of the argument of this series. So we should expect it. We should look for it. We should zealously hunt it out. And when we find it, we should not defer to the great. We should call upon our government, other governments, to punish the evil rich who do injustice, who pay bribes, by all means, amen and amen. But we don't simply condemn the inequality itself. So God hates injustice and oppression. He's provoked by it. He calls of us for justice. He calls on us to have his heart towards the weak and the powerful, which then moves us to our next point. What then exactly is justice due the poor? What do I owe? What is my obligation to the poor? The Bible's very clear on this. And again, I'm going to make a distinction between what I must do, justice, law, and grace and mercy. The final point should be grace and mercy. So what does justice to the poor and needy look like? Because it is commanded by God. It is not optional. What is justice to the poor and needy? First, we need to define our terms. Biblically, I'm going to argue, biblically, the poor are those without food and clothing. That's the level of poverty. i got to make that point because we live in a wealthy country, and we can speak in a relative way of the poor, and what we really mean are the comparatively far, far, far less wealthy. Yet the Bible, when it's talking about the poor, repeatedly is talking to those who don't know where their next meal will come from, who have insufficient food, clothing, and shelter. And so if we're dealing with what must I do, what is my absolute obligation, there's a distinction between somebody who really does not know where their food is coming from, somebody who really does not have sufficient clothes, and somebody who has those things and has a roof over their heads, and yet just has far, far less than I do. We'll get to my responsibility to them on the third point. Here, when we're talking about the poor biblically, we're talking about those without food and clothing. Let me... We even just read it in Deuteronomy 10, 18, that God is the one who provides food and clothing for the widow, the orphan, the sojourner. Remember? Or Matthew 6, 25. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. He's dealing with a bunch of disciples who may be so tight on their finances, they literally, day by day, need to come up with money for food. More explicitly, 1 Timothy um, 5, 8, Paul says this, which I think should settle the issue. I mean, 6, 8. If we have food and clothing, 
With these, we will be content. With these, we'll be content. If you have food and clothing, you're not in this biblical category that these commands relate to that I'm about to go through. It doesn't mean we shouldn't have compassion. It doesn't mean we shouldn't help. But I am trying to distinguish what is obligated to us, what we must do, distinguish that from grace and mercy. And I hope you'll see by the end of this why that distinction is important. Okay? Now, two more caveats. And this poverty must not be due to sloth, not through sloth. Some people don't have food and clothing because some people won't work. And Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, this, If someone will not work, neither shall they eat. So that's what's due one who will not, refuses to work. It is unjust, it's not what I owe them, in fact what I owe them is the opposite, to give food to those who will not work. So when we're talking about who do I have this obligation to, if you want to talk about the righteous poor or the just poor, these are not people who are poor and lacking food and clothing through sloth, nor through self-indulgence. In 1 Timothy 5, Paul's talking about who to put on the widow's list, which is a form of church care. And he tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, 5 and 6, she who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hopes on God, and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Timothy's not to enroll such a person. You can think of people who through, through spending and debt end up in a place where they, they have no money, they have, don't have what they need, but they've got plenty of this world's goods. They've wasted, it's like the prodigal. You remember the prodigal? In the story Jesus told, he leaves his father's house, he wastes his money with loose living and drunkenness and prostitutes, and then he's so poor he eats the leftovers from the pig food. And the point of the prodigal son is not that his father gave him justice when he took him back, but mercy and grace. You're expected to understand, of course the father has no obligation to this poor boy. Of course there's no just claim on his father's food and help. We're supposed to marvel at grace. Do not read the prodigal son as a story about justice. It's the older brother who wanted justice, and he's the bad guy. So we're talking about those who are poor, not through their own sloth, and not through their own self-indulgence. And I'd add further, these are unrepentant. Once we're dealing with repentant people, things change. The prodigal son's repentance is why it becomes good and marvelous that his father shows grace to him. If someone's been slothful and has suddenly reached poverty and they repent, that that can be different. But while people are unrepentant, while people are saying, no, I still intend to squander my money on alcohol or on other things for myself, or I still intend to not work, you're not doing a kind of, you're doing an injustice in supplying food and necessities for such people. That's, that's what the Bible has to say. Now, what surprised me in, in studying through the Old Testament is just how much provision is made for the poor. Now, let me give you the nature of the argument. As we think about what is my obligation due to my poor neighbor, my poor brother or sister, we're not under the law of Israel. I understand that. But whatever we find in the law of Israel is good, is just, is right, is lovely. 
And so I think we can take some pointers and cues from the law of Israel to see at a societal level, at an individual level, just what type of cautions, what types of safety nets, what type of provision there is for the poor so we can consider what we in our society owe them as well. So I, there, I have three points here, provisions for the poor under the law. I actually found a fourth I want to sneak in as a point zero. Um, so turn to Deuteronomy 14. This is point zero before we get to point one. Um, I've got these three points in escalating help for the poor. So in Deuteronomy 14, verse 28, we read, At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your town shall come and eat and be filled. The Lord your God may bless you in all the work that your hands do. So at some level, there's a nationwide tithe or tax. And it's set aside to support the Levites who have no inheritance, no land. They have a couple cities. And the desperately poor. The desperately poor. So there is a sense of taxing. Setting aside, everybody does this, and you gather it together, and you bring it to the city, and there is food for them every three years. I doubt that's going to be enough food for them to survive for three years. Perhaps on a particularly plentiful year it might. But that would be a first level or layer. The next is sort of similar. You must leave gleanings in your field. You must leave gleanings in your field. I'll just read to you quickly from Leviticus 19. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap the field right up to its edges, neither shall you gather the gleanings after the harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Now you remember this probably from the book of Ruth. Because Naomi and Ruth in a famine year have nothing. And so Naomi sends Ruth to Boaz's field to gather the gleanings. So what God says is to everyone harvesting from the land, whether there's your crops in the field or your grapes, you can't make a full harvest. You must leave some along the edges for the poor. But notice also the wisdom of God. This requires some level of involvement, commitment, work on the part of the poor who had to come and harvest or, like Naomi, get someone to do it for her. The law was not, you must gather it all and then deliver it. Rather, you leave it in the field for someone to come and get it. I marvel at God's wisdom. His social programs for Israel would not have thousands of government jobs. It would simply be making sure that people don't harvest their entire fields. And then those who have need could come and get from them. So, you must leave gleanings. The next level, you must gladly lend to supply his need. You must gladly lend to supply his need. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 15. Verse 7. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. But you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Now you're lending. Again, there's some involvement on the part of the person receiving, 
right? They're, they're recognizing some indebtedness. And if the Lord were to alter their circumstances, they would repay. Now, this is a lending where you're expecting or willing to not get it back because the Lord talks specifically about the temptation to think, oh, the year of cancellation is coming soon. Keep reading. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother. So you're, you're lending to him. You're giving him, but you're not worried about whether or not you get it back. You're not worried that it's only six months away till the cancellation of all debts. God is very specific, and he cares about our hearts. The seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your brother, and give him nothing. And he cried to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. This is not a suggestion. This is not a guideline. This is law. This is justice in Israel for the poor. If your brother is legitimately poor, he legitimately has need. It's not due to his own sloth or self-indulgence. You will lend to him, and you will not do it grudgingly. That's the law of Israel. This is a good, righteous law. We want to figure out where is our obligation. It's going to be something like or close to this. Because whatever God gave Israel's law is good and right and righteous. Turn to chapter 24 of Deuteronomy. Again, we'll see this brought up. This, I was really unaware of how much text in the law deals with our responsibility to the poor and our poor brothers and sisters. Deuteronomy 24, 10 through 16. When you make your neighbor a loan of any sort, you shall not go into his house to collect the pledge. And I love this. This is, this is God's heart for the poor. There's a temptation here that when your poor brother needs something, you deal with him gruffly. You deal with him with force. Since he's coming to you for a favor, you won't respect his rights. And so God says, no, you don't go in his house and take the pledge. You don't just barge in. You wait outside. You respect him. When you make your neighbor alone of any sort, you shall not go into his house to collect his pledge. You shall stand outside, and the man to whom you make the loan shall bring the pledge out to you. I mean, isn't it just marvelous that God cares at this level of detail for human dignity and respect? <laughs> and if he is a poor man, you shall not sleep in his pledge, because the pledge will be his outer garment, most likely. You shall restore to him the pledge as the sun sets that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you. And that should be righteousness for you and before the Lord your God. You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who in your land within your towns, you shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets. For he is poor and counts on it. Lest he cry out against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. This is the law of Israel. This is how we're to treat and the obligations we have. So at the first level, there's just this sort of free gift of food every three years for the widow and the orphan, the sojourner, and for the Levite. Then there's the ability to harvest. Even if you don't have a field to harvest, you can go to those who do and get the gleanings around the edges. Next level up, you, you are commanded to lend your brother a need to supply his need. Notice again, to supply his need, not to get his startup company off the ground. He's coming to you because I, I need food, I need clothing, I need shelter, not I need a second mule. And it's not you might, you will lend to him to supply his need. Next, um, if the need is great enough, you must freely care for him as your servant. Turn to Deuteronomy 15 again, back to 15. This is probably the most severe level of need. 
And I want to read Leviticus to you. I'll be turning there to, to sort of set this up. I think they both speak about the same thing and they inform each other. These are the types of things that, if we don't think carefully, we can almost be embarrassed of in the Old Testament. The more I've been looking at them, I think they're wise and wonderful. Now just listen to Leviticus 25, 35 to 43. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you. You shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. He will serve with you until the year of the Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to his own possession of his fathers. For they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt, that they shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but you shall fear your God. So I think describing a very similar situation, here's a level of debt or poverty where the person thinks to himself, my best option here is to actually give myself as a servant to my neighbor, have him care for me and work for him for six years. Let's read in Deuteronomy 15, um, verses 12 through 18. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, we saw in Leviticus, not sold as a slave, you won't, you won't enslave your countrymen, but sold to you as a servant. He shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year, you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of the threshing floor, out of your wine press. And the Lord, as the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this day. But if he says to you, I will not go out from you, because he loves you and your household, since he is well off with you, then you shall take an all, and you shall put his ear into the door, and he shall be your slave or servant forever. So I think of this similar to our modern-day... Um, filing bankruptcy. Here's a scenario where somebody is in such desperate need, they're willing to spend six years serving their brother, but they come out of it with, with furnishings of food, animals, grain. It's almost like a reboot for their life. They go back to their land, to their clan. You can also imagine people aren't going to enter into this lightly. Your need would be severe. But if you have severe need, God is set up in Israel that if somebody's completely lost what they had, they work for six years with their brother, they're not treated harshly, they're not a slave, and at the end of six years, they leave well furnished. These are the levels of social protection that, that the Lord God gave to Israel. Um, and the New Testament, the New Testament um, reiterates the concern for the poor. So again, I'll just remind you, at the basic level, there's just this giving of food, that, almost like taxation. I think it's right for governments to have some concern in these matters. There's a general tithe that went to pay for the Levite, and it was for food for the sojourner, the widow, the orphan. You couldn't take all from your field. You had to leave some. But in God's wisdom, again, you don't have a human resources department in Israel. You don't have this massive governmental uh, structure. What you have is laws not to reap everything. 
You have commands to lend and supply your brother's need. And if the need is dire enough to take him into your household to care for him, and he would serve you for six years, and then you'd liberally furnish him. That would be justice, what is owed or due the poor brother in Israel. Now listen to some New Testament commands emphasizing the concern for the poor and our obligation to meet their needs when we encounter them. Luke 3.11, the, uh, they come to John the Baptist and ask him, what shall we do? Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food to do likewise. If you have food and you're encountering someone who literally does not, they, they meet this criterion of poor, they don't know where they're going to eat, they have no food, they don't have sufficient shelter, it's not because of their sloth, it's not because of their self-indulgence, and you have the ability I believe you have the ethical and moral obligation to do what you can to help meet that need. Let me, let me reiterate um, as well with further passages. Titus 3.14 exhorts us to let the people learn to devote themselves to good works and so as to help cases of urgent need. I think that's the priority, urgent need. I, I'm cold. I don't have a place to sleep tonight. I don't have food. James makes it clear that if we, someone comes to our door, James 2, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, again, this is not somebody who, you know, their car needs some work. This is not somebody who, um, is, the level is at sustenance. But James says, and one of you says, go warm and be filled, which I'm praying for you, without giving them things needed for the body. What good is that? And 1 John 3.17 says even more plainly, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart to him, how does God's love abide in him? I want you to notice one other thing here. In every one of these situations in Scripture, you're dealing with people you're interacting with. In one sense, it's impossible for me to relate or act towards the poor. I can act towards people I meet individually who are poor. I have responsibilities for them but I, I don't know of biblically just responsibilities for the poor as a sort of abstract group. If you see your brother, if someone comes to your door, that's the language of the Bible. And so I would, I would tell you that where God allows you to interact with and meet truly poor people, meeting the biblical qualification, you are obligated, you and I must do what we can to meet their needs. And that's what justice requires. That is what God would have us do. Now, I would suggest not simply that minimum standard, but now moving into our third point, grace and mercy commended. We are encouraged to do much, much more. Much more. But I hope you'll see by the end of this final point why the distinction between justice and mercy is crucial. Why the distinction between justice and mercy is crucial. So turn to 2 Corinthians 8, where we'll see... Lavish generosity is encouraged, not commanded. Lavish generosity is encouraged, not commanded. What I said in my last point, I would argue, is what you must do. What you're not free to not do. What God would require of you where you encounter that type of need. Paul is trying to raise funds... For the church in Jerusalem, suffering persecution. And he's 
going to be swinging by Corinth. And so he wants to stir them up to give. But I want you to notice he will not do this by way of command. And yet he encourages, he exhorts them to give generously, liberally. Right? Verse 1, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor in taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So Paul, on his outward journey, on his missions trip, his outward trip, stopped by And there were people who had pledged and committed to raise certain amounts of money. Well, Paul's getting ready to come back and is telling him, okay, follow through. So now finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. And then Paul's going to address the people whose circumstances may have changed since his outward journey. Perhaps they were doing better fiscally on his outward journey and now... Things have changed, and they aren't going to be able to give as they said they would. For if the readiness is there, it's acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. God's not going to hold you responsible if you said, okay, Paul, I'm going to give this many shekels, I'm going to give this much grain, and then your ship sinks. doesn't come in. No, no, God was pleased with the readiness. But then he speaks to others who possibly due to concern, well, what if, what if, My ship sinks next year. What if my fields don't produce because there's no rain? Maybe I should save my money. Maybe I should save my money for myself so that I wouldn't be a burden to anyone else. Maybe I shouldn't give for this need. And then Paul gets in some pretty extreme language. I do not mean, verse 13, that others should be eased and you burdened. But as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered, gathered little had no lack. He's quoting the distribution of manna. How many days' worth of manna could you gather? How many? How many? Come on, guys. Awana needs to do better. How many days' worth of manna can you gather? One. If you gather two, it just rots and goes moldy. You can gather one day's worth of manna. So no matter how much you gathered, everyone has the same amount. So here we are actually looking at equality of outcome. We are actually looking at redistribution of things. And it's not under command. It's not under law. It's grace. The early church had all things in common. You know this. 
But it was a voluntary act they did. Listen to Acts 2.44. And all who believed were gathered together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceedings to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. But they were doing this voluntarily. We know this because when Ananias and Sapphira lie about the sale price of their land, Peter says to them, look, while you had it, it was yours. You were under no compulsion to do this. There was no law that required you to do this. See, equality of outcome is great when it's voluntary. Sharing and this person is more than passing over here and redistributing things. It's fantastic when it's done from a joyful, loving heart. It just makes really bad law. And the reason I make this distinction is because I think many today in their zeal for social justice confuse justice and grace categories. And so they take principles and ideals that we as Christians should hardly amen. You have an abundance, let your current abundance supply someone else's need. I say this not as command, but to prove by the earnestness of your love for others is genuine. You get the distinction? You get the distinction? I I think a lot of harm can be done when we take grace categories, generosity categories, mercy categories, and turn them into law. I think a lot of harm can be done. Now, I want you to notice also that such generosity benefits the giver most of all. Paul's whole rationale is it's better for you to give generously. There's a better blessing for you. Your father is pleased. You're storing up treasure in heaven. Paul says this in Acts 20, 35. One of the extant sayings of Jesus not found in the Gospels. Acts 20, verse 35. In all things, he says, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that he himself said it's more blessed to give than to receive. So Paul tells the church, we must help the weak. There's what you must do. And remember, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And we saw that even here in our passage. I give my judgment, verse 10. This benefits you, who a year ago started out not only to do this, but to finish doing it well. Look at chapter 9. Paul's still speaking about his fundraising. Verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. For one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. See, if we try to force and legislate the giving, you ruin it. You make this a law category. You must And we're not talking just the giving earlier. That's why I want to separate. You've got a poor, naked, hungry brother or sister. You must help them. God loves a cheerful giver. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all all sufficiency in all things, you may abound in every good work as it is written. Okay, so let let me make my final point as we transition to communion. Why I think this really matters. You know, I think some in their zeal, knowing how good it is to give, to give, to give abundantly, have crossed the line that Paul won't cross and say, not just I encourage you, but you must. And if you don't, you're greedy. And if you don't, you're wrong, you're oppressing. In fact, that, that wealth is inherently unjust. And they can go further and further. I want you to consider this. 
This type of generosity, here's the blank, is not justice but grace. Why do I want to stress that? Why do I think that's an important distinction to make? Why do I go to such lengths to maintain that distinction? A couple reasons. One, I, I would not burden your conscience. Paul says here, he does not want the giving done reluctantly or under compulsion. I don't want your giving done reluctantly or under compulsion. God loves a cheerful giver. But let me make an even more important point. If it's true that to have and someone else to have some need, even if it's their fault, is justice, you are going to distort the character of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ itself. If you truly believe that, then the story of the prodigal son is the story of the just father. Think about that. It stops being grace. The father has wealth. This young man, it's not his fault. He had friends who abandoned him, and you don't shame the victim. This young man has need. The father is just doing what justice requires. There's no praise. There's no wonder. There's no awe. You press that further. Who has more wealth than God? Who has more power than God? And all that God does in sending his son and all that God does in in reaching out to us and finding us in our lowliness and our deadness simply becomes what the rich and powerful are obligated to do. And the cross is no longer a sign of grace, but just what God needed to do. And you don't generally thank people for doing what they ought to do. You don't praise them for it. You expect it. You don't thank someone when they give you your paycheck. They owe it to you. It's not a grace. If we confuse justice and grace categories, we'll start viewing all of God's grace towards us as simply what powerful, rich people are obligated to do to poor, helpless, weak people. And then you're changing the character of God and the nature of the gospel itself. I I think these distinctions are important. So I'll remind you, God cares about social justice in society, justice man to man. He is angered at injustice in society, particularly when his people participate in it. And in particular, he has his eye upon the weak and the helpless, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. He commands we do justly to them. We must meet the real legitimate needs of the poor among us. We must supply their needs. We must... And then we are commended over and above that to be lavishly generous, lavishly giving, willingly, gladly. Because God loves a cheerful giver. So, brothers and sisters, let's turn our attention now to the grace of God. I'll I'll just close that verse in Corinthians. Listen to this. This is how Paul frames the gospel in these terms. 2 Corinthians 8. says to them, verse 9, For you know the grace, not the justice, the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. God would have us willingly, gladly, follow his example and join with him in doing that very thing. Let's pray. Lord God, I just pray that you would Give us the grace to truly believe the goodness in being generous, the goodness and the blessing that you promise to those 
We trust you for our provisions. Lord, you give us what we need day by day. Give us the faith to be generous. Give us the conviction to do justice and to deal justly with our fellow man, especially those who are weak and those who are powerless. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.